0: You are listening to season two of Future Ecologies.
1: The true state of listening cannot be acquired by force. The order to listen, listen, we all have heard and experienced it, guarantees a closing off, a turning away, a non-listening, possibly even a permanent disturbance in our once open and trusting listening channels. It is perceived like any sound that annoys, disrupts, hurts or injures. We cringe, we try to block it out, might fight it, may want to get rid of it, but we will not listen. By its very nature, listening is a continual and gentle process of opening. We usually know when we are in that place of perceptual receptivity, and we know when we have lost it. Listening is never static cannot be held on to, and in fact, needs to be found again and again. As such, it is disruptive in its nature. Paradoxically, while a grounded and calm state of mind, a sense of safety, peace and relaxation are essential for inspiring perceptual wakefulness, and a willingness and desire to open our ears, normal routines, habits, and patterns will be disrupted and laid bare in such a process of listening. Noises and discomforts inevitably will be noticed, and all kinds of experiences will be stirred and uncovered. Listening, in fact, implies a preparedness to meet the unpredictable and unplanned, To welcome the unwelcome. How do we reach such a state of listening? Why would we want to?
2: Sound. For those of us lucky enough to sense it, is an endless stream of information, whether it is quiet or loud, rhythmic, piercing, or droning. Wherever there is air, there is always sound, ready to be perceived. Simply put your trust in your ears and discover the ease with which you can distinguish the spaces around you, their textures, their contents. You can even hear the difference between hot and cold water pouring into the same glass. Sound travels. Unimpeded by twists, or turns, or obstacles, we can often hear things we have little hope of seeing. This is not a new discovery, It's the reason why sound is the basis for the vast majority of animal communication. It's theorized that the first animals to truly hear were some of the bony fishes, at least 450 million years ago. Their swim bladders may have coincidentally granted them a new ability to sense pressure changes in the water. Over time, this organ for balance stretched, curled, and specialized transforming into the auditory labyrinth we recognize as our inner ear. In fact, a very similar course of events may have evolved independently on as many as five separate occasions. A testament to the usefulness of sound. Mendel here. I'm giving Adam a break on this episode, but thankfully, I'm getting some help from a couple other pals. You'll be meeting them shortly. We're going to be exploring the nature of sounds, through the sounds of nature, from artistic, archival, and analytical perspectives. So stick around, because we've got some real ear candy coming your way. And I know we always say this, but we really mean it. Thank you for listening.
0: Broadcasting from the unceded, shared, and asserted territories of the Squamish, tsleil and Musqueam peoples, this is Future Ecologies, where your hosts, Adam Huggins and Mendel Skulski, explore the shape of our world through ecology, design, and sound.
2: we'll start this journey from where i am now on unceded coast salish territories the west coast of mainland canada vancouver british columbia not just because it's convenient for me personally but because this is the birthplace of a new school of how we relate to sound and our sonic environment here in vancouver in the midst of the revolutionary 1960s and early 70s a movement was forming in the halls of academia A composer named R. Murray Schaefer was questioning conventional assumptions about the nature of music and noise and trying to draw attention to the persistent sonic environment. His lectures on the newly coined soundscape were transformative for a generation of music students.
1: It just had this effect on me, it just popped whatever cork I had in my ear. (laughs) That music wasn't able to, music studies were not able to bring that out of my ear that lecture did and I walk out of the music building and I hear everything and it's fantastic but it's also absolutely hard to deal with because then you hear all the noises too
2: this is Hildegard Westerkamp she was among the very first students to witness Schaefer's thoughts about soundscapes and it shaped her life's work
1: Uh, For simplicity's sake, I usually say that I'm a composer. If uh, people ask more questions, then I start talking about that I almost exclusively compose with environmental sounds. I have some pieces that also include live instruments, Um, but my main interest is in listening to the environment, exploring our sense of perception, towards environment and uh, living beings, and that figures into my composition. So when I compose with environmental sounds, the language of environmental sounds is the really important aspect of my work. So it's never an abstract piece of music. It always has a message. It always has something to say about the environment, about a place, about a situation. In
2: 1973, Hildegard joined Schaefer and a small cadre of others in the newly formed World Soundscape Project. At the time, so-called noise pollution was a growing topic of discussion, and its solution was simple. The world should be quiet. The aim of the World Soundscape Project was to reframe the conversation, to establish that some sounds are pleasant, others are irritating, and that when taken together, They represent the unique character of a place, a soundscape. And the things within it? Sound makers.
1: Anywhere where there's air, anything that moves makes sound. So the tree is a sound maker in the wind. The leaves are sound makers in the wind. Um, All the animals are sound makers. We are sound makers. And usually sound making is a message. If the wind makes a certain kind of Sound in the tree, we understand the nature of the wind, whether it's a storm, whether it's a breeze, whether it's something gentle or very forceful, powerful, etc., etc.
2: And even those things that don't move play a part in our sonic environment. They reflect, absorb, or scatter the work of sound makers, adding their own flavor to our ears. Until only very recently, all sound was ephemeral. It formed a unique relationship between sound maker and sound perceiver, one that could never be held onto or duplicated. And since two ears can never share exactly the same space, each sound will be heard differently by different listeners. Suddenly, the technology of the written word gave language a foothold in time. Words were no longer gone as soon as they were uttered, available only to those present. They could be preserved, allowing an author to speak to an indefinite audience. What's more, they could be copied and edited. In many ways, this new faculty was a decisive moment in human history. With it came undeniable powers of communication and organization. For better or for worse, it offered humanity an asylum from the relentless now. The invention of written language decoupled the mind from its immediate environment, and, perhaps, it fundamentally changed the way that we situate ourselves in nature. Next, our capacity to record expanded from language to sounds in general, from wax cylinders to vinyl records to magnetic tape, with varying degrees of fidelity one could capture the sounds of voices, music, or whatever the recordist turned their attention to. By the time the World Soundscape Project was formed, their ambitions were enabled by the very latest technology, compact, portable, electronic tape recorders, ready to document the sonic world and present it as avant-garde radio programming on CBC Ideas.
1: For the next hour, I need your ears. So there would be a whole show on the sound marks of Canada. There was a whole show that was called Directions, where my colleagues were asking for directions everywhere in order to get the dialects from the regions.
3: To the next street and you follow the next street right out. You can't miss it. It's railed around the point, but you follow yes. all the time You get out there, your fish plant.
1: Quite a ways from
0: here. You have to get down to New Ross, don't yeah. you? Just
1: back across the beach, the, the road towards, towards Halifax on the new road, isn't it? Northeast and southwest. Okay. <coughs> you are coming up there. And it's the time <coughs> I've seen a ship turn <coughs> and head off to sea. We're going to go down. Follow if you want to follow us here. We're just going in here, and I'll pick up my car, and I'll come back out, and you can follow me around. And I'll show you where it is, eh? Oh, vous <coughs> pouvez pas gauche,
0: gauche après. Ah bon?
1: What? It's about four or five blocks. It's it's no, it's not. <laughs> <laughs> no, no. Five blocks. Just keep going straight and you can't miss.
3: Coast walk is is along he's here. Burnet. What they call burnet. Cozzolano. <laughs> Cozzolano. Mm-hmm. Stanley Park
1: yeah, is uh yeah, Danmark, right? <laughs> <laughs> hey,
4: sorry. No, We got a yeah. long ways to go, really. Yeah, he said an hour.
1: And that was like a, like a poetic, um, a, a sound poem almost, an hour of that, right?
2: <laughs> but the overarching goal of the World Soundscape Project was that of public education. They wanted to draw attention to the ever-evolving soundscape, raising it as a priority for conversation, policy, and design. Although those involved were mostly musicians and composers, the aim of the project was to be as multidisciplinary as possible. They collected vernacular from a gamut of scientific and musical fields and published a dictionary of terms, the Handbook for Acoustic Ecology.
1: To me, the handbook is symbolic for what we ultimately really wanted, was to work together with scientists. We never managed to do that. We managed to connect with architects. We managed to connect with the more progressive maybe acoustical engineers who were willing to listen, who were willing to look at our work and um, see the significance of it. In terms of the mainstream, we, I think, looked flaky to a lot of people.
2: Despite that, the World Soundscape Project drew on techniques cultivated by pioneers in musique concrète and germinated an entirely new field of study and creativity using sounds from the natural environment. In composing works of music through altered soundscapes, Hildegard could forge a new consciousness of the environment in the mind of the listener, using elements they might otherwise dismiss as unimportant. For example, crickets.
1: There's this incredibly tiny animal here, and it makes this beautiful sound at night. Exploring that sound creates a bigger wonder about this animal that's significant in our environment. And I wanted to enlarge that. I wanted to exaggerate that and say, those tiny animals play just as much a part as motorbikes in our environments, if not more and let's listen to them as clearly and openly and maybe as loudly loudly as possible. It created a wonder in myself about the subtlety and beauty of that sound. And when you then listen back to the original, you have a completely different understanding of it. You come full circle and you begin to understand it differently. That was my motivation behind Cricket Voice. The listener doesn't necessarily know all those details, but it doesn't really matter to me.
2: As the World Soundscape Project developed its pedagogy, its ideas found purchase mainly within the arts and creative professions. Musicians and radio producers creating media in a new field dubbed acoustic ecology. But one field begets another. Enter soundscape ecology.
3: Soundscape ecology, on the other hand, is a little bit more focused. And in particular, uh, it's focused on the study of sounds coming from different kinds of habitats.
2: To introduce our next guest, I'm calling in a friend, Andrzej Kozlowski. Hey, Mendel. Andrzej is the founder of Half Wild, a blog featuring songwriters and other creatives, and a soundscape recordist himself. He spoke with a legend in the field of soundscape ecology, so I'll let him take it from here.
4: Okay, well the voice you just heard is Bernie Krause. I sat down with him in Sonoma, California. As you heard, he makes a clear distinction between soundscape and acoustic ecologies. He was originally a musician, but now he practices as a scientist, using unadulterated sound to study changes in the natural environment.
3: So... The reason that I got involved in this is because, as a professional musician during the 1960s uh, and 70s, uh, I found myself very constrained by the work that we were doing and the ways in which we were doing that work because it always involved being inside and cloistered. I mean, we worked in studios f- for hours and days at a time without any access to the outside world. <laughs>
2: this is also an occupational hazard for podcasters okay
3: let's let him finish for me that was that was almost not to belabor a point but it was almost life-threatening to me i mean i was feeling really uh, quite ill as a matter of fact and so when i changed my career in 1979 and dropped music as a as a profession i tried to find a way to get outside more. And so um, I studied bioacoustics and got my PhD in marine bioacoustics in 1981 and have never looked back.
4: He spent the last 50 years in the field, literally all over the globe, making more than 5,000 hours of tape.
3: That is attended recording, meaning that I've always been present when the recordings were being made. It puts me in touch with the living world around me in ways that I can't otherwise do in an office or a home or a studio or something like where we're recording right now.
4: And just like the artists and academics behind the World Soundscape Project, he realized that there were gaps in how we talk about sound.
3: When I was writing these books and trying to describe what I was hearing, what I found was is there's a there's a tremendous paucity of language to describe what we hear, because we're a visual culture. So there's a lot of material describing the visual, but almost none, there just aren't very many words to describe what we hear. So I took the idea of Murray Schaefer's soundscape, which is all the sound that reaches our ear, and in working with kids, I had to ask them, when they went outside to listen to sounds, what were the sources of those different sounds? Are they mechanical sources? Are they human sources? Are they natural sources? What are the ways in which those sounds appear to you? How do you describe them? And so at one point in the late 90s, I introduced the term biophony, meaning the natural sounds that we hear, the collective sound that we hear from a particular uh, habitat. But it's just the natural sounds. It's not anything else. It's all the bird sounds and insects, mammals, amphibians, and so on.
4: It was at that point that Bernie began working with Stuart Gage, an entomologist from Michigan State University.
3: And he said, hey, wait a minute. There are a lot of other Sources of sound that we've got to deal with here, for instance, the geophony or the natural sounds that that are non-biological. Uh, these are the first sounds heard on Earth, the sounds of water and movement of the Earth, waves at the ocean shore, that kind of thing. And he said, "So let's call that the geophony." And I said, oh, "Okay, we can do that."
4: And of course, biophony and geophony leave one source of sound unaccounted for. Human beings are prodigious noisemakers. Even though we're animals, much of the sounds we create just can't be reconciled as part of the biophany. The din of humanity deserves its own category.
3: And so let's call that anthropophony. Originally, we called it anthropony, which is incorrect. Anthropo, like anthropology, is human. So we had the wrong prefix when we uh, first came up with that term, but we've changed it since.
4: Bernie refined his language even further, splitting the anthropophony into two subclasses, the controlled sounds, such as spoken language, theater, and music, and the chaotic or incoherent sounds, which we usually just think of as noise.
3: Because it has no particular information, it carries no message for us except perhaps danger or something like that like the sound of a fire or a siren or something
4: so I actually do some field recording in my spare time I get especially excited about amphibian and insect choruses since I'm usually interested in recording the biophany incoherent human sounds can be really frustrating it's amazing how pervasive they are even in some of the more remote places It can be quite hard to get a clean recording. Airplanes, construction,
2: traffic, air conditioning. These are things that I barely even noticed until (laughs) I have to record an interview. I thought Hildegard put it really nicely.
1: Well, the unfortunate part of our listening perception is that we can block things out. We have that wonderful way of uh, being able to concentrate on what we want to listen to and block out the rest. And a microphone doesn't do that, right? But when we, we do that, we spend a lot of psychological effort, really, to do that, especially if it's a noisy environment.
2: Microphones can be pretty unforgiving. Anyways, take us back to Bernie. What did he uncover from all of his sonic research?
4: Right, so Bernie was looking at the organization of sound in the biophony, and he started to notice patterns. He heard that, every habitat is composed of a unique combination of animal voices, a kind of signature and sound. But no matter which habitat he was recording in, those voices operated in similar ways. To explain it, he came up with a theory called the Acoustic Niche Hypothesis.
3: When creatures began to vocalize, they needed to find bandwidth uh, within the frequency and temporal spectrums that they could vocalized so that their voices would be best transmitted and received. So they had to find kind of channels within the frequency spectrum where their voices
4: could be heard and not impeded by others. Basically, the idea is that everybody's just trying to be heard. When things are dense and noisy, like in a tropical jungle, it's a waste of energy to vocalize at the same pitch as another species. In order to distinguish themselves, animals will adapt their communication to fit in an unused band of sound. They lay claim to that acoustic niche. So their
2: niche is like their own private pitch or frequency band. Like one animal species reserves the soprano,
4: and so another sings in the baritone. Right. And Bernie has all sorts of incredible examples. Using fairly simple software, he can isolate a frequency window in a noisy jungle recording and easily single out the voices of individual species. Here's an unedited recording from Zimbabwe.
3: But, what about this guy?
4: Or these bats, who occupy the highest frequency bands, and whose vocalizations have been pitch-adjusted here to fall within our hearing range. Or these birds,
3: What about this little guy right smack
4: in the middle? Whoa. That is... wild. I was completely floored by this. When you see the waveforms on the screen, it's even more obvious how distinct each of these animals is in its niche. But there are lots of natural habitats that aren't nearly as densely voiced as this tropical jungle. In places where the soundscape is a little roomier, where bandwidth is a little less scarce, another aspect of the acoustic niche hypothesis becomes more apparent.
3: So you have both temporal and frequency niches, where a creature would interfere with another in terms of frequency, Perhaps it would wait until that other first creature stopped vocalizing, and then it would would pick a time to come in to
4: fill that niche. This is probably pretty familiar if you've ever heard frogs chirping at dusk and a chorus of birds at dawn. There's less pressure to use a narrow frequency band if you can just talk in shifts. Basically, the acoustic niche hypothesis describes how animals are always trying to minimize how much their songs overlap with their neighbors both in terms of pitch and time. Nice. Yeah, it's really elegant. And sometimes sonic niches incorporate the physical environment as well. Bernie played me a clip of a troop of baboons that were using huge granite outcroppings to their advantage. They found this echoey
3: spot in the forest that's only for them. And listen to this, it sounds like, a, it sounds, somebody accused me of doing a very strange mix, but I didn't do any mix at all. <laughs> These guys are doing it on their own. Watch what happens when the baboon comes in right here.
2: Speaking as a fellow primate, that, that just sounds like a lot of fun.
4: Yeah, there's no doubt that we love to hear our own echo. It's interesting to think about how resonant spaces like these, places like caves, might have first encouraged humans to sequester our own sounds from the rest of the natural world. How did the anthropophony first cleave off from the biophony? Regardless, the sounds of the anthropophony are now overwhelming the biophony.
3: The problem, the big problem now, is human noise. And a lot of it is, is like full frequency
4: range. A handful of animals have been observed to adapt to our cacophony, a few birds in particular. But by and large, as the anthropophony expands, what Bernie describes as the great animal orchestra falls silent. Having gathered digital audio for decades, Bernie's collection represents a library of snapshots, an historical index of biodiversity from around the world.
1: Because he's made so many, Bernie has made so many recordings over the years, there are now some recordings where he has comparisons between what happened in the 90s, what happened in 2004, 2000, whatever. And there's some very dramatic examples of um, drought, loss of water, loss of birdsong. It's totally dramatic when you hear it. There's really important work by the fact that these sound examples exist and that they can be studied now and that bioacousticians, biologists can go back in time and, and begin to look at you know what's been happening.
4: What's been happening? We can basically sum it up as habitat loss and disruption and climate change.
2: Yeah, not to put too fine a point on it.
3: We can't ascribe directly, because we don't have enough information yet, we don't have enough data, the correlation between that drop-off and climate change. You've got to be really, really careful about that because people will ding us really hard.
4: But one thing is beyond question. Over 50% of Bernie's archive comes from habitats that are now silent.
3: You can go there and try to record, but you won't be able to get any uh, sound, living sound, from any living animal.
2: I guess the best time to start recording your environment is, like, yesterday. We can hear what's out there, even if we can't see it. And the more we know about what's out there, the more we can do to prevent its loss.
4: Absolutely. And soundscape ecologists have developed techniques using modern recording and data storage technology to monitor ecosystems. This is called bioacoustic monitoring.
3: With digital equipment, we can record long periods of time and capture huge amounts of material and, and data. And we have ways of storing it very cheaply. Um, and that's called remote monitoring. And that's by taking these uh, small pieces of equipment that are in the seven-eight dollars $800 range, And, uh, you know, tying them to trees and walking away and coming back a month later and picking up the data and storing it and analyzing it, uh, I mean, there's no way to do it. from a human perspective, we've got to use algorithms that are created on computers that can handle huge amounts of data that analyzes this uh, material.
4: It's powerful stuff, but that kind of unattended remote recording is not Bernie's main interest. Much of his work is kind of a bridge from the art world to the world of hard science. His soundscapes are meant to be accessible, listened to, meditated on. It's not an exercise in just data collection. That's all
2: right. We've still got one more guest on this episode, and one more co-host. Hey, Simone. Are you still there?
0: Hey. Yeah, I'm here.
2: Simone Miller, everyone. You've actually heard her once already in this episode. Simone, care to remind them?
0: Sure. You are now listening to Season 2 of Future Ecologies.
2: Simone is an associate producer here on Future Ecologies. She's been working with us since the summer. It's really nice to officially introduce you.
0: Yeah, thanks. It's nice to come out from behind the scenes.
2: Definitely. So, tell us, where is this episode going next?
0: Well... Next, we're traveling to a subtropical island chain. It's the Ryukyu Archipelago. Our destination is the largest of these islands. It's just about halfway between Japan and Taiwan. We're going to Okinawa.
5: Hi, my name is Nick Friedman, and I am a postdoctoral researcher at the Okinawa Institute of Science and Technology.
0: This is a newly established university. It's only been around since 2011. It also goes by OIST for short. OIST. (laughs) Yeah. And at OIST, Nick works in collaboration with a group called OKion, or the Okinawa Environmental Observation Network. Okeon relies on both academic researchers and citizen scientists to collect data about the health of the island's ecosystems. Specifically, Nick is leading the Ryukyu Soundscapes Project.
5: The Ryukyu Soundscapes Project is a project to record soundscapes from across Okinawa and the Ryukyu Archipelago. And using them to understand uh, the biodiversity of life that lives in this area, and to understand how human activity might affect that biodiversity.
0: Unlike Hildegard and Bernie, who both came from musical backgrounds, Nick's interest in acoustics stems from his passion for birds and trying to trace evolutionary patterns in their songs. Coming to Okinawa and hearing all the endemic species was pretty exciting for him. He'd already heard of Okeon, so he proposed to add acoustic monitoring to their roster of projects.
5: Listening to a soundscape, I'm already as an ornithologist trying to identify every bird that I hear. And so finding digital ways to do that was a way to save everyone time. And if you can abstract this somehow, if you can figure out what mathematical components of the soundscape, how they relate to biodiversity, then that can simplify doing these biodiversity assessments all around the world.
0: So to test this out, They've set up 24 sound monitoring sites across the island, in places with varying degrees of human disturbance. Like Bernie was saying earlier, these field recorders are literally just strapped to trees. Through Okeon, Nick and other OIST researchers are able to get permission to put their recorders on private property. Since the university is so new, the grounds are pretty small, and for this kind of research they want to cover as much of the island as possible. Doing this sort of acoustic monitoring has been theorized for a long time. But Nick and the Ryukyu Soundscapes project are among the first to actually put it into practice.
5: So I'm not super interested in developing the methods. One of the reasons for that is that the last 10 years of the literature, when I first got into this, I I was looking for a paper that did what I wanted to do. And I couldn't find one because most of the papers were identifying a new method or improving on an old method and saying, Oh, here's how you would do a biodiversity assessment using soundscapes if you were to do that. And I couldn't find anyone actually doing the thing, but I actually like animals and wanted to go in the forest and do this thing. So that's what we're doing because this is something that we weren't able to do 5, 10, 20 years ago. The technology wasn't really there to collect this much data and process it efficiently. You know when i first started doing ornithology people were still getting recordings on magnetic tape and then digitizing that and then complaining about how much better the magnetic tape was and so to go from that to just having these recorders that are on in the forest all the time
0: we're talking big data nick has collected over 120 terabytes to date Every year of data that the project collects would take decades for anyone to actually listen to.
2: Sounds like they could use some robots.
0: Yep, that's right. Nick and his team have developed two different ways to break down the data. The first is a tool called the Soundscape Index, which is kind of an approximation of the acoustic niche hypothesis. All oversimplify, but essentially they analyze the sound spectrum for different frequencies. From there, They have a reasonable idea of how many different species are active in the area and how diverse those species are. These soundscape indices are a way to understand the character of a soundscape without actually listening to it.
2: So, it's kind of a rating system. Like, the computer doesn't tell you what is living there, just how much living is going on.
0: Exactly. In the other
5: method, I actually want to know what some of these species are because uh, they're interesting to me. We can use this method to pull out the vocalizations from a particular species. We can teach the computer to think like a bird watcher. And then the computer can go through the recordings much faster than a human being and identify where it heard this bird.
0: That's right, it's machine learning time. It's not just digital audio gear that's finally up to the task. It's also the data analytics.
5: So it would take me the rest of my natural lifespan to actually listen to each of these recordings and write down what birds I heard. I don't want to do that. So instead, I use this approach to teach the computer how to recognize the birds. Then I install that recognition model on our supercomputer, the supercomputer then chugs through it.
0: In fact, it's not just Nick teaching the computer. Oist invited local birdwatchers of all ages to help identify the bird calls that the Ryukyu Soundscapes project had recorded. But naming each of the species is only the beginning. They have to keep the training wheels on for a little while. They supervise the machine learning to make sure it's actually matching the right bird with the right call. And this is laborious.
5: Have you ever wanted to listen to like 30,000 crow sounds in a day, just like, just over and over again?
2: No, thank you.
0: (laughs) Yeah, me neither. But they've been rewarded for their efforts. In particular, the project has resulted in a heap of data about a rare endemic bird called the Yanbaru Kina. This flightless bird is seen so rarely it was only confirmed to exist in 1978
5: this is the okinawan rail and it is one of the most rare species on the island i've seen them like maybe twice and usually it's like the tail end running into the bushes but they're super noisy and i totally didn't imagine that they're actually super noisy little birds and that makes them really easy to track using this system. Being able to confirm that the barraquina is present in a lot of the places we expected it to be was really cool for me. Uh, And especially being able to go through these recordings and find it consistently is great.
0: Most of the project's results so far have been really helpful in tracking what species are living where and learning about their activity level over the course of the day and night. But the big picture questions are still kind of up in the air.
5: Uh, Anthropogenic noise have encroached to a certain extent on animal communication and this can become an issue for animals that are trying to communicate, especially at low frequencies, they have to sort of pitch their songs up a little bit, and that can take more energy. It can change what the song means physiologically to the receiver of that signal. It, it does sort of rewire the um, set of acoustic niches, but how exactly it does that is not entirely understood. When you have different interruptions of sound. And whether those interruptions of sound are a cicada starting to sing, or whether it's a truck going past, what do these animals do to compensate? And over long periods of time, do they evolve new strategies to get around this problem? What I want to understand is how that human disturbance influences animal communication and overall biodiversity. These are questions I'm still trying to answer.
2: So it sounds like it's kind of a waiting game. Like, they'll have to record long enough to be able to actually observe those changes in the wild. And science is rigorous and nature is messy. They'll, they'll have to see those same changes a handful of times at least to actually draw those conclusions.
0: Yeah, definitely. But maybe it doesn't have to take so long. Nick doesn't want this work to be done in isolation. They want other environmental monitoring researchers to link their data together, to substantiate each other's results and learn to listen to the planet as a whole.
5: I think what we'd like to see happen is to connect this system of uh, biodiversity monitoring in Okinawa to monitoring systems around the world so that we can tell What's happening to the pulse of the planet as climate change is disrupting our ecosystems, as global change in general is having more of an effect? What does that do to our ecosystem in Okinawa, and how does that compare to other ecosystems?
0: And the more scientists that can act in collaboration, the sooner we can answer those big picture questions.
2: But we don't need to wait for science to happen to start caring about our sonic environment. We just need to start paying attention to it. Forget the microphone, just go for a walk and focus on listening. Hildegard has been advocating for exactly this kind of sound walking since the 1970s.
1: You don't forget the place where you've gone on a sound walk. You remember that place. We've done many sound walks in Vancouver as part of the Vancouver Sound Walk Collective. And I just remember the various places really well, and that's the experience for everyone else. It becomes uh, becomes a conscious place. Little details that we've noticed there, little interactions. It becomes a place of a relationship that you have with it. You create relationships when you listen. Well, the listening sense and the sounding world naturally forces us to be in the present. If we attend to sound and we attend to listening, we can't help being in the present. It slows us down. And there's something very grounding in that act.
0: That really resonates with me. And in some ways, we can make use of recording to let other people in on that relationship. Like Anjay and Hildegard said earlier, data libraries of soundscape recordings can allow biologists, bioacousticians, and even the everyday person to hear what a certain area sounded like years ago. To witness the way the the sound of a place can change. And that's a very useful and powerful thing. This huge archive that the Ryukyu Soundscapes project has created? It's like a, a time capsule.
5: You know, we can preserve these soundscapes for future generations that want to find out what it was like to be on Okinawa uh, at this particular time. But that's one thing we don't really have from the past is, you know, before there were recording equipment, how do you figure out what a place sounded like? You know, what did Okinawa sound like 200 years ago? So I think having these recordings available gives us the biological context in which the animals we study lived during this time but it also can give us some cultural context like what were people doing then you can hear all these cars going by and airplanes and sometimes you can hear people singing during festivals and i think this is all part of what it's like to experience uh, this time and place
4: but there's already so much sound in the world I think that sometimes we need to distill it a little to make something that we can really get meaning from.
2: So, like music?
4: Sure, call it music, or electroacoustic composition, or a podcast. All of the animals we've talked about don't find their niche at random. First they listen to the sounds around them, and then hear where they can fit. Bernie told me about several indigenous peoples that make music in concert with the sounds of the forest, the the kivaro, the yanomami, and the bayaka in particular. They participate in the sound of nature.
3: And then the human voice becomes part of the biophony.
2: So before we go, I'd just like to decompress a bit with you two. There's kind of a theme to each of these guests, Hildegard and, and Bernie and Nick, where they're all fascinated by sound. But really, how they can do what they do is always mediated by technology, right? Like through recording technology or editing software or computer algorithms. These are the things that kind of drew them onto the paths that they're on now. I, I guess what I'm wondering is if these technologies are kind of a fascination of their own or if you think they actually allow us to truly listen more deeply.
0: It's a really good question. I remember in the interview with Hildegard, one thing that she said really stuck out to me was that when you are listening, we cannot help but to selectively listen. Our brain naturally edits out things that it doesn't perceive to be important or that we don't necessarily need to pay attention to. Um, so we are constantly, without being aware of it, editing the soundscapes that we are in and this, the, the all of the different noises that we are experiencing.
4: Yeah, I think, I mean, for me, I would certainly not want... To just live in the world, in a world mediated by technology. But the technology, particularly when you experience it the way that Bernie Krause describes his preference for experiencing it, which is, you know, attended soundscape recording, it really converts you into this sort of bat eared fox. You know, it's a type of fox that has these massive ears. And this is, this is what's so incredible about sitting in the woods and actually being present with the, you know, feeling the wind on your face, feeling, um, smelling the, the, the odors of the earth and, and the trees and being able to just experience everything in stark relief. It kind of accentuates things that you otherwise wouldn't be aware of.
0: When you're listening back, to a recording, you're actually forced to engage with all of the different layers of sound and everything that's going on in the soundscape. I think that listening is something that needs to be learned and is something that's very difficult to learn because we have to work to override our own methods of editing. And technology, as Hildegard put it, is kind of a a way that allows us to get around that and learn how to not edit out certain things, how to pay attention to certain things that we otherwise wouldn't be aware of.
4: Yeah, I I love how recording in the woods forces you into the presence of the biophany. So it's kind of like a tutor, it's kind of like a coach that helps us remember our part in the larger ecosystem. Certainly, I'm, I'm an advocate for experiencing nature not mediated through technology. Absolutely, that is a must. But I think we have a tendency perhaps to favor certain types of sound. And when we're listening through it, this particular kind of technological medium, we are exposed to the full range of sounds reaching us and things come to our attention and into our consciousness that otherwise wouldn't. You know even the sound of a beetle scurrying through leaves you would never pick up that sound so it just basically expands your awareness beyond belief and then you go back into the woods with this new awareness not mediated through technology
2: yeah i it's it's funny i actually heard a plant grow one time just every few seconds as it was these tiny little growth spurts were, were rustling this leaf like a little megaphone for this tiny plant and it was just amazing to me to to realize if we stay quiet and we pay attention the sort of things that can enter our perception so long as we make ourselves available to it.
0: I think that in this way technology is giving us back something that we may have lost or something we may have forgotten and And giving us tools to move forwards and learning how to better be aware of all of the layers of our world that we are interacting with on a daily basis without even knowing it.
2: Thank you for listening. This episode of Future Ecologies was produced by me, Mendel Skolsky. And me, Anja Kozlowski
0: and me, Simone Miller,
2: with help from Adam Huggins. In this episode, you heard Hildegard Westerkamp, Bernie Krauss, and Nick Friedman. You can hear more of their work at hildegardwesterkamp.ca, wildsanctuary.com, and okeon.unit.oist.jp. Special thanks to Jenny Shine, Barry Truax, Reeford Miller, Deblica Gwynn and the Access to Media Education Society, Gail McCool, David Abram, and Katie Lukes. Soundscapes and music in this episode were produced by Hildegard Westerkamp, Leanne Beresamosak-Simpson, Vortiches, Sunfish Moonlight, Excerpts from Directions by Peter Hoos and the World Soundscape Project's Soundscapes of Canada, Jack Hertz, jay Kozlowski, Bernie Kraus, the Ryukyu Soundscapes Project, and Louis Sarno, courtesy of Wild Sanctuary. You can find a full list of credits, citations, and more on our website, futureecologies.net. If you like what we do, and you want to help keep it ad-free, please consider supporting us on Patreon. Pay what you can, as little as a dollar a month, to get access to bonus monthly mini-episodes, stickers, patches, and more. This season, I'm guiding a tour of mushrooms and the kingdom fungi. Head over to patreon.com slash futureecologies. You can get in touch with us on Instagram, Twitter, Facebook, and iNaturalist. The handle is always futureecologies. We'll be back next month on the second Wednesday. Please rate and review Future Ecologies wherever podcasts can be found. It really does help the show, and we love reading what you have to say. Enthusiasm for eating fruit. We totally forgot that we were trying to do an ASMR bit. So, I'm sorry if you felt tricked or, or startled by unexpected sounds. We were just excited about having a space in each episode to be especially silly. We are really grateful to get feedback about our work. I wouldn't be whispering this to you if a good friend hadn't spoken up. So please, get in touch with me anytime at Mendel at Future.